For today's episode, we are going to be covering part two of our very brief discussion on Moses' typology in Matthew's gospel. And to do that, we're going to be covering the last three sections that I mentioned last time. By way of reminder, in part one, I talked a little bit about what exactly typology is and what I believe um, to be a convincing argument or a convincing case for the credibility of Mosaic typology in Matthew's gospel. And then I looked at the parallels between the birth and infancy narratives of both Moses and Jesus. To quickly recap that, we have two men born into a time when Israel is under oppression, and in both instances, the kings of these oppressive nations were threatened by the birth of a specific child, and as a result, they gave orders for all children. In the case of Pharaoh, all um, male Hebrew uh, newborns. In the case of Herod, all uh, children two years and younger in Bethlehem. Um, They give orders for these children to be massacred, but in both cases, God providentially preserves and protects Moses and Jesus. If you want more specifics on that, I highly recommend go back and listen to part one. Today, we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration, and we will wrap up with the Great Commission, which of course parallels the end of Jesus's earthly ministry to that of Moses. So, Starting off here with the Sermon on the Mount, Really early on, I think we see an overlap between the events of the life of Moses and Jesus, specifically in terms of their function as lawgivers. The, the, the theme of the law is very important to Matthew in this section, of course. Before we look at the parallels, I want to point out that Matthew strategically places the Sermon on the Mount in his gospel. Craig Blomberg, he points out that after already having established Jesus' Jewish credentials, he does this in the first two chapters, of course, Matthew is now more interested in showing how Jesus differed from Judaism. So remember last time I talked about how Jesus would have to correct these expectations of first century Jews? Well, that's sort of what Blomberg is suggesting here. So far from establishing a new law, Jesus came to fulfill and thus transcend the Mosaic Covenant. Since Matthew had already shown Jesus to be repeating Israel's history as the new Moses in the opening chapters, his audience would now be primed to learn how it is that Jesus relates to the law of Moses during this sermon. So this section is absolutely loaded with parallels between Sinai and the Sermon on the Mount. So first, both Jesus and Moses ascend a mountain. And as I go through these, I'm going to be giving you guys these scriptural references, so feel free to jot them down and look them up later. Uh, but first, like I said, Jesus and Moses both ascend a mountain. That's Exodus 18.3 and Matthew 5.1. This is very significant because in order to build off the events of the Exodus, Matthew leans heavily into the imagery of Sinai, which of course is the place where God gave Moses his law and instituted his covenant with the nation of Israel. And as part of that, God promised that he would dwell among them and be their God. That's Exodus 29.45. This promise ultimately found its fulfillment in Jesus, whom God named Emmanuel, meaning God with us. 
Second, both men delivered the law of God to the people of Israel, Exodus 24.3 and Matthew 5.2. To be abundantly clear on this point, because there are some views out there like the Roman Catholic view and the Anabaptist view, I don't want you to confuse that with Baptist, uh, but they would say that during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was in some sense or another either adding to or replacing the law of Moses. And there's nothing in this section where Matthew tries to hint at or even imply that Jesus was trying to deliver or change the law. But rather, he is showing that Jesus had the ability and the authority to both interpret and to clarify the law of God. R.J. Banks, he writes in his book, Jesus and the Law in the Synoptic Tradition, he says that it is not so much Jesus' stance towards the law that Matthew's concerned about, to depict. It is how the law stands in regards to him as the one who brings it to its fulfillment and to whom all attention must now be directed. And of course, there's a couple other details seen between the life of Jesus and Moses. We have things like the mentioning of uh, 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. Now, of course, Jesus's fasting happens right before in chapter four. It happens right before the Sermon on the Mount. But nonetheless, these are parallels between Matthew and Jesus. We have uh, or excuse me, Moses and Jesus, not Matthew. Deuteronomy 9 9 and Matthew 4 2. The emphasis on meekness. We have Numbers 12 3 and Matthew 5 5. And then there's a promise to inherit the land, Exodus 32 13 and Matthew 5 5. And then at the very end, we have a series of warnings provided both by Moses and Jesus. So throughout this section, Matthew consistently depends on details and imagery familiar to his audience because he's working to show that Jesus possessed the same posture and the same authority as the lawgiver of Sinai, which is Moses. So out of these parallels, I want to give special treatment to two of them. First, Jesus and his relationship to the law, and second, the series of warnings in what is known as the closing triad of the Sermon on the Mount. So I've already suggested this, but Matthew intended not to only show the relationship between Jesus and Moses during the sermon, but he also wanted to show and explain, really, the relationship between Jesus and the law itself. So Matthew, in effect, we have to keep in mind he was fighting on two fronts, one of antinomianism and one of legalism. Antinomians basically saying that it doesn't matter how you live, the law's moot, basically, and legalists saying that in order to be saved, you have to completely follow the law, so trying to achieve salvation by works in effect. So Jesus, he corrects both of these corrupted views, but but for him to do so, it was crucial that Matthew, um, at least for his readers, demonstrates that Jesus was teaching from a place of, at a bare minimum, equal authority to that of as Moses. In other words, if Jesus is going to come in and clarify and correct misunderstandings about the law, he needs to have the same authority at a minimum as the lawgiver, which was Moses. So Matthew's underlying goal in his presentation of the Sermon on the Mount and his inclusion of specific details of the account of Sinai is to show that because Jesus is the true giver of the law, his explanations and clarifications are authoritative, they're correct, and they're trustworthy. The case for this goes quite a bit forward when we consider that Matthew records Jesus as saying very early in the sermon that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's Matthew 5.17. So again, from the start of this section, Matthew portrays Jesus as a lawgiver, just like Moses. However, more importantly, Matthew shows that Jesus fulfills the law that Moses delivered at Sinai. So it's really important that we 
just keep this in the back of our minds, especially when we're reading Matthew's gospel. If Jesus's teachings were found to be discontinuous with the law of Moses, and I think I said this earlier, Jesus could not have been the promised Messiah of Israel. George Ladd, um, this great author, he writes in A Theology of the New Testament that, quote, the fulfillment of the law is not a new law, but a new relationship to God. And it is this that Jesus came to achieve. So Matthew shows his readers that the teachings of Moses and the teachings of Jesus are congruent and that the latter fulfills the former. So the second point I want to look at here is the closing triad of the Sermon on the Mount. Dale Allison writes in his book, The New Moses, which I mentioned last time, um, that the closing portion of the Sermon on the Mount, which is basically a group of three separate warnings that Jesus gives, uh, quote, might remind a first century reader of the Pentateuch's closing book, Deuteronomy, close quote. As Moses brought Deuteronomy to its end, he also included a collection of warnings that are similar to those found in uh, Matthew chapter 7. So here's a few quick examples of this. Again, I'm going to be mentioning the scriptural references if you want to jot these down. First, we have the warnings that Jesus provides concerning false prophets in Matthew 7, 15 through 23. These warnings are actually legislated in the Pentateuch, and that is in Deuteronomy 13 and 18. Second, Matthew includes Jesus' teaching of the two ways. That's Matthew 7, 13 through 14. And these two ways were really first presented by Moses, who told the nation of Israel that he had set before them a blessing and a curse, a blessing for obedience uh, to the law and a curse for disobedience. That's Deuteronomy eleven twenty six through 28. And lastly, there are similar warnings in between Matthew seven twenty six through 27 and Deuteronomy twenty eight fifteen, in which both Jesus and Moses make the connection between hearing the words of God and doing them, and then warning of the consequences of failing to do so. There's a great emphasis for both of these men on the importance of not only hearing the words of the Lord, but obeying them. And this was a crucial point to be made by Matthew, and he did so by showing that Jesus' view of the law is no different from Moses' view of the law. So now let's go ahead and move on to the transfiguration. Um, this moment, this section is an incredibly important moment in Jesus' earthly ministry, namely because this is the second time where God the Father audibly and in a sense visibly affirms Jesus' deity and his mission. You know, the first time, of course, being at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove, and the voice from heaven speaks this of my son with whom I'm well pleased— the Mount of Transfiguration, we also have an audible voice from heaven, and we see the appearance of Moses and Elijah. So when we arrive at the account of Jesus's transfiguration, we have to immediately notice there's a continuation of Matthew's efforts to bring to the reader's mind the details of what happened at Sinai. So first, we have a reference to a high mountain that's descended upon and covered by a great cloud. That's Exodus 24, 12 um, and 15. In Matthew 17, 1 and verse 5. So reference to a great mountain covered by a cloud would immediately elicit a recall of the events of Moses at Sinai, where God covered Sinai with a cloud to converse with Moses. Second, and I've already mentioned this, but an audible, an audible voice speaks from this cloud to the people who are on the mountain. So God spoke to Moses from the cloud at Sinai. 
um, all that Moses was to go and to say to the nation of Israel. Similarly, on the Mount of Transfiguration, God spoke to those present to affirm that Jesus was his son with whom he was well pleased and that they must listen to him. That's Matthew 17, 5. Third, there's a supernatural radiance or transfiguring of the central figure in both instances, Exodus 34, 29 and Matthew 17, 2. Uh, the early church historian Eusebius, he writes in the proof of the gospel that, quote, when Moses descended from the mountain, his face was seen full of glory. In the same way, only more grandly, our Savior led his disciples to a very high mountain, and he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun. Fourth, there is a reported fear of those who witnessed the events on the mountain, Exodus 34.30 and Matthew 17.6. Sinai, when the people saw the shining face of Moses, they responded with a great fear, so much, in fact, that Moses had to cover his face with a veil, which he would remove when he went to speak to the Lord. Likewise, the disciples, they expressed great fear. Jesus is transfigured. They hear the voice coming from the cloud, and um, they respond accordingly, so as I imagine any person would, with great fear. Um, and fifth and finally, there is a mention of these reported events occurring after the specific time of six days. That's Exodus 24, 16 and Matthew 17, 1. Another really interesting point concerning Matthew's account of the transfiguration is his inclusion of the specific individuals that Jesus spoke to on the mountain, being Moses and Elijah. So in conjunction with the obvious parallels from the details found in Exodus and Matthew 17 that I've already talked about, Dale Allison he says that because Moses and Elijah are the only figures in the Jewish Bible of whom it is related that they spoke with God on Mount Sinai, their presence together makes us think of Sinai. So again, we sort of have this idea that Matthew is trying to draw his reader's attention back to um, the, you know, the original, the, the old covenant with Moses, the giving of the law, Sinai, all these things that transpired after the Exodus. So building off these parallels presented in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew continuously established the connections between Jesus and Moses and the events of Sinai, like I just said. Both accounts focus on the same event. However, I will say that they differ in terms of their emphasis. While the Sermon on the Mount tends to focus on Jesus' relationship to the law given at Sinai, Matthew's account of the transfiguration I would argue, tends to focus back more so on Jesus' relationship to Moses by causing his readers to recall the supernatural radiance of Moses as he descended the mountain of the Old Covenant. And I'd say this is important because the role Moses played. He was a prophet, he was the mediator of the Old Covenant, he was the giver of the law, and he was the liberator of God's people. And all of these functions find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ and his mission. So it's important, again, that Matthew draws the connecting line between Jesus and Moses. So it's important to say that these changes in appearance also serve a similar function. Moses' change of appearance was really a sign for the people that he had conversed with God, and what Moses spoke to the people is really what God spoke to the people. That's Exodus 34, 34 through 35. The transfiguration of Jesus served as a sign of his anointing and his, and really a confirmation of his teaching. And I'd say that this is substantiated by the fact that when Peter, he wants to defend the authenticity of the gospel that Jesus and his apostles preached, Peter decides to appeal to what he witnessed on the holy mountain. He says that we didn't follow cleverly devised myths, but we were eyewitnesses 
to his uh, majesty, and he talks about the Mount of Transfiguration. And so now we arrive at our last section, which of course is the Great Commission. And I mentioned this in the last episode, but I'll say it again now. Matthew intentionally begins and ends his gospel with mosaic typology. So by the time the reader reaches the end of the first gospel where Jesus delivers the Great Commission to his disciples, Matthew has already established a clear typological connection, um, and, and it's this typology that he uses to conclude his gospel. So like all the other sections in this passage um, of the Great Commission, there are several parallels between Moses and Jesus, but instead of focusing on things like the law um, or their function as lawgivers, these sorts of things— The section of the Great Commission emphasizes the parallels between how both Moses and Jesus brought their earthly ministry to a close. Similar to the last two sections, there is yet another mention of a mountain. In the Sermon on the Mount and the Mount of Transfiguration, the mountain reference was probably designed to evoke images of Sinai. However, the mountain at the end of Matthew's Gospel is used to evoke images of a different mountain. Deuteronomy 34.1 says that Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo. I hope I'm saying that correctly. This, of course, is the mountain upon which Moses died, bringing his time on earth to a close. Before Jesus' ascension, Matthew records that Jesus and his disciples also went up to a mountain where Jesus brought his earthly ministry to a close, Matthew 28.16. And there's also a commission that takes place in both of these scenes. In the case of Moses, Deuteronomy 31 tells us that when Moses was 120 years old, he summoned Joshua, the son of Nun. God subsequently commissions Joshua to take Israel into the promised land. And God gave Joshua this command, but he also gave him a promise, and he encouraged him by saying, Joshua, you know, be strong and courageous, because it is God who goes before you, and it is God who is with you. That's Deuteronomy 31, 7, 8, uh, 7 through 8, and verse 23. In Matthew 28, we see again that it is God himself, it is Emmanuel, God with us, who commissions his predecessors to continue on the mission, and he also gives the promise of his reassuring presence and how Jesus says it is, I will be with you to the end of the age. That's Matthew 28, 20. And then, of course, the language of obeying all that God has commanded that Matthew employs in the closing verse of his gospel also contains a very solid connection to the language used in the Old Testament, especially in relation to Moses. Before going to speak to Pharaoh, God commands Moses to go and speak all that I command you, Exodus 7.1. In the 40th year in the wilderness, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment. That's Deuteronomy 1.3. Likewise, when Jesus commissioned his disciples, he told them that they must go to the nations to and teach them to observe not some, but all that he had commanded them. That's Matthew 28, 20. Matthew no doubt saw the connection between God-giving commandments and the importance of following these commandments in totality. And that is going to bring us to a close. Before I log off for this episode, here is a quick recap of what we've talked about in the last two episodes. So with his Jewish audience in mind, Matthew intentionally used the history of the Jewish nation, specifically that of Moses and the Exodus, to show his readers that Jesus of Nazareth was the long-awaited Messiah. And to do this, Matthew began and ended his gospel showing that the promised Messiah is the one who recapitulates not only the history of Moses, but the history of Israel as a nation. This recapitulation 
is really important because to the first century Jew, there were going to be some expectations that the Messiah would in many ways repeat the history of God's people. And a Messiah found to be discontinuous with that history could not be the promised one of God. And throughout the last two episodes, I have demonstrated how Matthew intentionally used an already established mosaic typology, and he used this to show his Jewish audience that Christ was the fulfillment of the law given by Moses and was the true leader of the promised second exodus. I also talked about the definition of typology and its significance in the study of the New Testament. We made a case for mosaic typology in Matthew's gospel. And then, of course, a majority of our time, we spent looking at the parallels between significant moments between the life of Jesus and Moses. This is an incredibly interesting topic and one that I think we could all spend a ton of time really studying and diving into. And if you're interested in digging deeper into the topic, the two books that were recommended to me by Dr. Kruger are The New Moses by Dale Allison, uh, which I've quoted a couple times, and Echoes of Exodus by Brian Estelle, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Um, and I'll make sure I tag both of those in the show notes. As a reminder, our next series, we're going to be working through the Gospels. Um, I'm planning on this actually taking a pretty long time, at least uh, several weeks to go through this. My plan is to give overviews of each of the books, uh, covering things like themes, authorships, dating, structure, um, you know, kind of just overall lay of the land of each of the Gospels. And that's mainly because in uh, Gospels class, we covered that information. It's something I'd never really thought of before, but once I learned it, it really was eye-opening and helpful in my understanding of each of the Gospels and their unique perspectives and contributions um, and their theological you know, emphasis. But after we do that, we're going to spend some time doing a Bible study of sorts where I'm basically just going to go through significant passages and uh, do my best to um, exegete them here on the show. So I'm really looking forward to getting into the word um, on this podcast. And so I hope you as listeners will continue joining me for that. This has been Theology and a Cup of Coffee. I'm Chris Prosser, and I'll see you next time. By grace I am redeemed. By